While James Dean is arguably one of the most iconic figures in film history, his actual life story has been muddled up with inaccuracies and fabrications, many of which I want to clear up in today's episode. I have compiled as many relevant quotes as possible from reliable sources and those who knew James best, as well as some that I could find from Dean himself. One of his best friends, writer Bill Bast, once said that if you were to talk to a half dozen people about their views on and experiences with James, you would get over six different James Deans. During my research, I found this to be the case and tried to write an all-encompassing portrayal of James based on these accounts. Of course, since he is no longer with us and oftentimes played a part in crafting his own mythology while he was still alive, sometimes it is difficult to separate fact from fiction. But what he did leave behind is a quite literally world-changing legacy and should be remembered for all of the achievements he made in his brief time here on Earth. Thank you for listening to the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. I'm your host, Audrey Cornell. James Byron Dean was born on February 8, 1931, in Marion, Indiana, to Mildred and Winton Dean. When he was six years old, the Deans moved to Santa Monica, California, where Winton worked as a dental technician at Veterans Hospital. Three years later, Mildred passed away from uterine cancer, a loss that would haunt James for the rest of his life. The two of them were extremely close. One fond memory James had was that every night Mildred would tell him to write a wish, put it under his pillow, and she would make it come true the next day. In an essay he wrote for school, James said that, I never knew the reason for mom's death. In fact, it still preys on my mind. He was sent to live with his Quaker Aunt Hortense, whom James dubbed Mom, Uncle Marcus, and Grandmother Emma Winslow on their farm in Fairmount, Indiana. His mother's coffin was taken back to be buried on the same train that his father sent him away on. James later told columnist Hedda Hopper, This was a real farm, and I worked like crazy when someone was watching me. Forty acres of oats made a huge stage, and when the audience left, I took a nap, and nothing got plowed. He knocked his two front teeth out, swinging on a rope in his aunt and uncle's barn, having to wear fake teeth for the rest of his life. He would often pull them out to joke around with his friends or freak people out. He also had incredibly poor eyesight and wore thick glasses. The signature squint in his films came from the fact that he could barely see. When James was around 11, he became acquainted with a Methodist minister named James DeWeird, who served as a father figure and even got James interested in racing and bullfighting, two hobbies he pursued in his 20s. His uncle Marcus purchased him his first motorbike in 1947, which he would ride around Fairmount whenever he could. Fairmount historian Evelyn Washburn wrote that, To really understand Dean as his hometown understands him, you must know about the man after whom he patterned his life. To know this cultured, tolerant man, the weird, with his flair for living, his fire and humor, his dazzling intelligence, is to know Jimmy Dean. DeWeird also introduced James to the arts and self-expression through them. He became an avid drawer and painter, often gifting pieces to his most prized acquaintances. He also got into sculpting and made several pieces. Before he died, he was working on a bust of himself. Elizabeth Taylor, James's co-star and friend, recalled that, When Jimmy was 11 and his mother passed away, he began to be molested by his minister. I think that haunted him for the rest of his life. In fact, I know it did. We talked about it a lot. 
During Giant, we'd stay up nights and talk and talk, and that was one of the things he confessed to me. James was a successful student, excelled in his classes, and took part in his high school's basketball, baseball, and pole vaulting teams. Despite standing 5'8 on a good day, he was an important member of the basketball team, one opponent saying that he could knock the eyes out of a basket. James went through an estimated 15 pairs of glasses by the time he graduated, since he would smash them on the court every time he got frustrated. His uncle Marcus even joked that he was called into the principal's office so many times that he should have just moved in. James was also involved in drama and the debate club, winning first place for dramatic declamation in the National Forensic League's Indiana State Contest, where he read Madman by Charles Dickens. David Knoll, one of James's classmates and the son of the high school drama teacher Adeline Knoll, described James as shy. He was always in a hurry. He, on his motorcycle, was always on the move. In a sense, he was a loner, but no one would accuse him of that. He knew he was good at what he did. James later told Hedda Hopper, The decision to act was never prompted. My whole life has been spent in dramatic display of expression. He performed in several plays at his school. Adeline Nall recalled that to prepare for an apple from Coles County, in which a bullet hole had to be on one of the set pieces, he put a real hole in my set. I would have painted it in, but not Jim. He wanted everything to be exactly right. He nearly caused a riot by keeping the kids rehearsing one night until nearly midnight. Even then, Jim's attitude was, if you want to act, you have to give up everything for your acting. In his senior year, he was suspended from school for punching a classmate who criticized his performance in speech class. Marcus Winslow recalled that by his senior year, they didn't know what was the matter. He didn't take stock in us anymore and refused to help out. We were at wit's end. He was no longer one of us. After graduating in 1949, James took a bus to California to live with his father, Winton, and stepmother, Ethel. Having not seen his father in almost a decade, their dynamic was strained and would remain so forever. James's friend, Bill Bast, said that Winton was not an overtly demonstrative person. Jimmy wanted to extract more from him, and if you've met Marcus and Ortens, you can't imagine that they were very demonstrative or physically affectionate either. He looked for more, especially as a budding young actor. His father wished for James to major in pre-law, so he attended Santa Monica College. His friend, Larry Swindle, said, Jim attained a modest popularity on campus because he worked for it. He knew everyone, and everyone knew him, but perhaps that was not unusual at a junior college whose total enrollment was 1,600. He was fresh from Indiana, attending SMCC for one year to establish California residency, before entering UCLA. He was a theater radio major and was writing a radio script with Herb Shank. It was immediately clear that Jim was never going to make it as any kind of writer, or as an actor, we all thought. In fact, after transferring to UCLA in a performance as Prince Malcolm in Macbeth, he was generally thought to be a poor actor. Hearing his Midwestern Indiana accent reciting Shakespeare dialect was probably something to behold. The school newspaper wrote that he failed to show any growth and would have made a hollow king. James's aspirations to become a serious actor caused the rift between him and his father to grow even wider. He moved out of the house and joined the Sigma Nu fraternity, where he only stayed for a brief period after almost drowning in the school pool during his initiation. While working on the production of Macbeth, James met Bill Bast, who became one of his closest friends and roommates. He recalled that, 
Jimmy was subject to frequent periods of depression and would slip off into a silent mood at least once a day. During these periods, I found it impossible to communicate with him, and I soon learned to ignore him or avoid him completely. Invariably, he would snap to after a few hours and never acknowledge the fact that he had caused anyone concern or offense. Jimmy's moods ended as abruptly as they started. He stayed in touch with Reverend James DeWeird, writing to him after transferring to UCLA. I don't really know who I am, but it doesn't really matter. There really isn't an opportunity for greatness in this world. We are impaled on a crock of conditioning. A fish that is in water has no choice what he is. Genius would have it that he swim in sand. We are fish, and we drown. In 1951, James dropped out of school to pursue becoming a full-time actor. His first role came in a religious televised episode called Hill Number no. 1, in which he played John the Apostle and had only a few lines. He had recently come down with a cold, and therefore his voice sounded lower than usual. Good woman, must you torment yourself with these memories, these instruments, these thorns? Were it not better to forget them all? Surely they are but signs of cruelty, of hate. Oh no, Nicodemus. These thorns were his crown. We must keep them because they were his. But Mary... Do you remember when he fed the multitudes by the sea, multiplying the loaves and fishes? Yes, I was there, and I. And John here was among them. Yes, I was there, and later on gathered the fragments left by the 5,000. Yes, there was a great throng, and they wanted to take him by force and crown him king. But he always knew he was the king of sorrows, and he preferred this crown and accepted it out of love. But it was given in hate. But taken in love. Love will always conquer hatred. Love is strength. Hatred is weakness. Is that not what he always taught? Yes, that is true. He did teach us that. His appearance on the show garnered his first fan club called the Immaculate Heart James Dean Appreciation Society, which was made up of teenage girls who watched the program for school. They even invited him to a party that they threw where Bill Bass said, Jimmy got to play the star to the hilt and he loved it. The parents brought in three walk-on roles in the movies, Fixed Bayonets, Soldier Beware, and his largest role to date in a scene in Has Anybody Seen My Gal? which starred his future co-star, Rock Hudson. Hey, Gramps, I'll have a chalk malt. Heavy on the chalk, plenty of milk, four spoons of malt, two scoops of vanilla ice cream, one mixed with the rest, and uh, one floating. Would you like to come in Wednesday for a fitting? To make ends meet, James worked as a parking lot attendant for CBS Studios, where he met 35-year-old advertising agent and producer Rogers Brackett, who took James under his wing and aimed to boost his career since he was well-connected in the business. James moved in with Brackett in Los Angeles and got several roles in television episodes with Brackett's help in exchange for sexual favors. Brackett said, My primary interest in Jimmy was as an actor. His talent was so obvious. Secondarily, I loved him, and Jimmy loved me. If it was a father-son relationship, it was also somewhat incestuous. He also arranged for James to service producers and directors to get roles, which James absolutely despised, calling the men vampires. Bill Bast wrote in his book, Surviving James Dean, that James was part of Roger's inner circle. He was not happy with the scene or his role in it as Roger's apparent trick. He added that he once saw a drawing that James had done of a grotesque sketch of a lizard's body supporting a man's head. 
The head was unmistakably Rogers' brackets. Whom did he find more loathsome, Rogers or himself? Rogers for being a lizard or himself for consorting with one. Whatever the price, he owed Rogers an enormous debt for opening his narrow world. Sadly for Rogers, what he failed to recognize was his protege's almost pathological abhorrence of indebtedness, that Jimmy could not merely bite, but eventually devour the hand that fed him. Another person who guided him during this time was actor James Whitmore, who had just been nominated for an Academy Award for Battleground. Whitmore taught classes about the Stanislavski method, which James attended weekly. He also found an agent named Jane Deasy, who was one of his greatest champions throughout his career. Someone who worked at the Lewis Schur Agency office alongside Deasy said that, Jimmy appealed enormously to Jane's maternal instinct. He had that lonely boy quality which women find irresistible. And of course, she believed he had talent. Like all good agents, she almost has a sixth sense when it comes to finding actors. From the very beginning, her faith in Jimmy was utter and complete. Rogers Brackett encouraged James to move to New York City for even further opportunities and helped fund his trip, while he himself was off to Chicago for a job. Since James's friendship with Bill Bast had fallen apart after dating Bast's girlfriend behind his back, he had no more attachments or opportunities in Hollywood. There was never a better time to make the move. Although it was painful for James to ask, he borrowed money from his aunt and uncle, as well as Reverend DeWeird, and stayed at the YMCA in New York. Bast wrote that James was always embarrassed when people did things for him. He disliked the feeling of obligation that goes with acceptance of a favor. In New York, he was hired to test stunts for a popular competition show called Beat the Clock, but then promptly fired for completing the tasks too quickly and efficiently. Bast had recently moved to New York City for a job, and the two reconciled and moved back in together. They became close with dancer Dizzy Sheridan, who was later most known for playing Seinfeld's mom in the 90s sitcom. They talked about their hopes and dreams. Sheridan said that James never for one instant doubted he would make it. He always knew that he would one day be a star, and there was no question in his mind about it at all. Rogers Brackett had recently arrived in New York, and James returned to live with him again, since he had no money of his own to live off of, considering he did not have a job. Sheridan was distrustful of Brackett, claiming that James had wanted to come to New York to get away from Brackett, but that he had relentlessly pursued him there. Brackett got James a job working as a deckhand on the yacht of Lemuel Ayers, a Broadway set designer who was looking to produce his first play, called See the Jaguar. Eager to meet some prominent people on the cruise and learn the ins and outs of boats as well, since James was into boats, he was horrified when Ayers pressured him into sex. The event was so traumatizing that James carried a knife whenever he met with prominent people in the industry. James took Bill Bast and Sheridan to visit his family in Fairmount, whom he was thrilled to see again and hoped to one day move to a nicer climate where they could spend their days resting, especially Ortens, who had developed severe arthritis in her hands. Bast wrote that James took us to his old high school, where, with a bit of his ego showing and the flourish of his own special brand of bravado, he took over for a few days. His dramatics teacher, Adeline Knoll, was more than pleased to see him and turned her classroom over to the three of us. Dizzy demonstrated modern dance techniques, and I got in my quarter's worth by talking on TV directing and writing. After a year of trying in vain to convince the New York professional world of our capabilities, it was a wonderful boost to have so many people accept us as masters of what we were trying to accomplish. 
James got a call that he was cast in what was to be the ill-fated See the Jaguar, which only ran for five performances, and the trio returned to New York. On his performance, the Herald Tribune wrote that James Dean adds an extraordinary performance in an almost impossible role. He played a 16-year-old boy who was locked away in a smokehouse by his mother to protect him from the cruel outside world. James was able to film episodes for prestigious TV series like Studio One and Lux Video Theater. His uncle Marcus said, As soon as we found out he was on TV in New York, we ran right out and bought a television so we could watch him. Of course, we'd hardly move or breathe so we could see every bit of it. We thought he looked so thin. His face looked thin. Indeed, James was struggling to make ends meet and was notoriously a massive chain smoker, often going through two packs a day and was rarely photographed without a cigarette in his mouth. Playwright Tennessee Williams said, In retrospect, everything happened far too quickly for Jimmy, but he didn't see it that way. He craved speed and excitement and drama and rapid affirmation. He was ravenous. I don't know how this would have aged, or how he would have aged. He was very Keatsian in that regard. He seemed to burn and live and love with a white-hot fever. Barbara Glenn, whom James dated for two years before he left for Hollywood, said that Jimmy was a terribly destructive person. Our relationship was destructive. I knew he would destroy himself in the end, and that's why, when it came, it wasn't a surprise. James's television show castmates found it difficult to work with him at times because he was such a mumbler, and his spontaneity often did not fit well with the live setting. While rehearsing for The Thief, Mary Astor said that their co-star, Paul Lucas, told the director, The trouble is that we don't know what the hell he's saying, when he's going to say what, or where he's going to be when he says anything. Our answer came over the speaker from the director. I'm sorry, people. That's the way Jimmy has to work. Do the best you can. James was the one who got all the notices, and we were just lumped together as cast. Don't be afraid of me. You will not hear recriminations from me. What's done is done. What I'm concerned is the future, your future. And I have made a plan. From today on, you will be a member of the firm, a businessman with salary, a salary that will, you will earn by your own efforts so you can repay the money you took. Is that fair? Yes, of course. It's... And I think that you had better begin your apprenticeship away from Paris and our plantations in Brazil. Are you sending me away? Yes. What, it, what are you turning me out? Is that what you mean? You are my son. How can I turn you out? What I do, I do for you. How long will I be in Brazil? Two years. Two years. Father, if I, if I swear that in the Fair future... Now, please I don't make it more difficult for me. Our Paris office will handle your transportation from Bordeaux. Two years. Father, I've never been away from you. Come back to me, a fine man. More Abrahams, who produced I'm a Fool said that James was an enormously imaginative and spontaneous actor. And this, of course, causes disruptions, delays, but it comes from artistic effort. He was just beginning to get discipline of choice, and he still had trouble holding a character once it was set. He would never deliberately foul up a production. Of course, he was a little crazy. You could never tell if he was going to be manic or depressive. 
After meeting actress Chris White in his agent, Jane DC's office, the two spent several weeks preparing a scene to try out for the actor's studio, and were both admitted in 1952, studying under prestigious acting teacher Lee Strasberg. Always in touch with his family back in Fairmount, Indiana, after graduating high school, he wrote to them that the actor's studio was the greatest school of the theater. Very few get into it. It is the best thing that can happen to an actor. I am one of the youngest to belong. He only stayed for a short time, finding Strasberg's methods too forceful and against his own personal approach to acting. Since his career was finally going somewhere, James was dreading the possibility of being drafted in the Korean War. After much deliberation, Bill Vast said that James decided to write a letter declaring himself a practicing homosexual. His exemption came through, and the threat of the draft vanished, but the fear of repercussions from that letter haunted him for the rest of his professional life. Warner Brothers later covered this by saying he was classified as 4F due to his poor eyesight. However, in a letter written to James from his agent, Jane D.C., after he wrote to her about whether or not marrying his girlfriend, Pierre Angeli, would change his status, she says, I don't know what to tell you. I found out that if you get married, you have to advise your draft board, and whether they will re-examine you or reclassify you or what happens, I can't find out. This proves that his original reason for being opted out was something he could change. Sometime in the early 50s, James met Eartha Kitt, who was a famous entertainer. Kitt took him under her wing, later saying that, Our love for each other just happened. I became his confidant, and I taught him about stage presence. We were like soul brother and sister. Her daughter, Kit McDonald, later said that Eartha's relationship with James Dean was another one the press assumed as romantic, but they were just dear friends. She called him Jamie, and she was very protective of him. She could sense his vulnerability, and they shared a kinship. His death was something she did not really get over. One of James's friends recalled that he had a knack for pulling people into tightly episodic, one-on-one -on -one relationships that had a way of running disconcertingly, if not disturbingly, deep. He had few pretensions and seemed to demand that you join him to form some single purpose. He'd badger Eartha into long discussions, and while she enjoyed his friendship, she said at times it was almost painful for her. He'd devise some theory he knew she'd disagree with. He'd play the devil's advocate. People had to get shook up. Sleepers had to wake up. James also became close friends with Martin Landau, who was just starting out as an actor as well. The two frequented drugstores in New York City. Landau said that James was his best friend. We were two young, would-be, and still yet to work, unemployed actors, dreaming out loud and enjoying every moment. We'd spend lots of time talking about the future, our craft, and our chances of success in this newly different, ever-changing modern world we were living in. Landau was one of James's favorite photography subjects, a hobby he had recently taken up. Since James was often a loner on his television sets, the drugstores brought an opportunity for socialization and mingling with fellow struggling actors. He often felt lonely, especially since Dizzy Sheridan had left the country for a dance opportunity, and Bast was back in Hollywood for a TV show. James would study people in New York and copy their mannerisms, anything to distance himself from his own mind. He was a voracious reader, his favorite book was The Little Prince, and loved music, despite being hopelessly tone-deaf learning to play the bongos and recorder. James befriended Roy Shatt, a photographer who followed him around his usual haunts. James was fun to hang around with, but he was always making romance with his own activities. 
He made romance with the fact he didn't eat or dress like other people. Shat recalled that James started working on short films with a Bolex camera, but nothing came of it. Like everything else he started, he didn't have the patience to finish. James got the part as a gay Arab houseboy in a Broadway production of The Immoralist, in which he had to wear brown face. Hate this fucking brown makeup, he wrote to Barbara Glenn, and was the conniving villain who tries to seduce the lead, played by Louis Jordan. James was uncomfortable playing the role and didn't like the story, but knew it would be an important production for him to take part in. Bill Bast wrote that James later told him that all had gone well in the early stages of rehearsal, but that the experience had ended badly. The out-of-town opening had proved Jimmy to be the highlight, but the show to be in need of rewriting and redirecting. A new director was brought in to take over, and Jimmy's part was drastically cut down. He had always shown a son-like attachment to any director in whom he had faith and confidence. But, either deliberately or unintentionally, this new director abused his confidence and turned on him one day when he asked for guidance in his role. James decided to quit, but his co-star, Geraldine Page, convinced the director to keep James in the show. She ended up saving his career, since during one performance, James caught the eye of director Elia Kazan, who was looking to cast the lead role of Cal Trask in East of Eden, based on John Steinbeck's novel of the same name. Kazan wrote to Steinbeck, I looked through a lot of kids before settling on this Jimmy Dean. He hasn't Brando stature, but he's a good deal younger and is very interesting. Has balls and eccentricity and a real problem somewhere in his guts. I don't know what or where. He's a little bit of a bum, but he's a real good actor. James's friend, Bill Gunn, said, Every New York actor dreamed of being found anywhere doing anything by Kazan. If Brando was the god, then Kazan was the godfather. Kazan was thrilled to find James, whom he considered to be exactly like Cal Trask. There was no attempt to cast it better or nicer. Jimmy was it. He had a grudge against all fathers. He was vengeful. He had a sense of aloneness and of being persecuted. And he was suspicious. James left New York City for Los Angeles in March 1954 with Kazan. They traveled on a plane which James had never been on before and spent the whole trip looking out the window at the ground below. The two of them lived together in adjoining dressing rooms on the Warner Brothers lot. Kazan became a surrogate father for James and kept my eye on him night and day. Warner Bros. had signed James on to a nine-picture contract over the course of six years and set to work on crafting a biography. They wanted to project a wholesome all-American farm boy image as well as highlight the brilliant actor the audiences would expect to see. James added in a statement that, a neurotic person has the necessity to express himself and my neuroticism manifests itself in the dramatic. Why do most actors act? To express the fantasies in which they have involved themselves. Look at that scar you got on your shoulder, Father. I've told you, Cal. It's an old wound I got in the Indian campaigns. Why do you ask that now? What'd she look like? Was she pretty? She had the most lovely hands. Like ivory. She took such good care of them. Her mother had arthritis. She was always afraid it would come to her in her hands. Talk to me, father. I gotta know who I am. I gotta know what I'm like. I gotta know... Where is she? I'm telling you truthfully, Cal. After she left, I never heard from her. While working on the Warner Brothers lot, James met Italian actress Pier Angeli, 
who is working on the infamous The Silver Chalice opposite Paul Newman, who is playing the role that James had turned down. They soon fell in love and would be together for about eight months. Many of James's friends noticed that he became softer and more stable when he was with Angelie. James and his movie twin brother, Richard Davalos, lived together during production to build a realistic relationship. Davalos later said that, Jimmy and I shared a one-room apartment over the drugstore across the street from Warner Brothers, and we were Aaron and Cal to the teeth. It crept into our social life. He would do something, and I would reject him, and he would follow me down the street about 20 paces behind. Davalos also recalled that it was very difficult to play the scenes in which they had to fight. He said the hardest scene was when we have an argument and Cal hits me. Jimmy didn't really hit me, but it was so real, and I believed he hated me. I believed he hit me because it was real for him too. I went off the set after the take and cried and cried for about four hours. I was so upset. We all play that fucking game where we can be our own worst enemies. We can destroy ourselves. And Jimmy had that in him too. And he got caught in it. You had to start slugging, didn't you? What were you doing, showing off for her? Huh? You had to start slugging. I was trying to help you. Like well, I don't need your help. I was trying to help you, Aaron. If you want to slug people, do it for yourself and not for me. And don't lie to me about trying to... I'm trying to help you! James improvised many elements of the film, namely the dance he performed in his bean field and the birthday party scene when he cries and grabs onto his father, Adam, played by Raymond Massey. Massey and James notoriously did not get along, which director Elia Kazan only egged on to get a genuine dynamic between them. In one scene, in which Cal reads passages of the Bible for Adam, Kazan told James to sprinkle in profanity throughout to anger Massey. His real reaction remains in the final film, with his actual dialogue dubbed over. Kazan recalled that James gave everything he had in that film. He didn't hold anything back. At the very end of the shooting, the last few days, you felt that a star was going to be born. Everybody smelled it. All the publicity people began to hang around him. Then he began to spoil, I thought, a little bit. By the next film, I thought something in his character was spoiling. Part of this may have been due to how much James gave of himself and his own traumas with his father in order to play a realistic character. He admitted in a letter to Barbara Glenn that he was pushing everyone away because he was getting into character. I see a person I would like to be very close to, everybody, then I think it would just be the same as before and they don't give a shit for me. Then I say something nasty or nothing at all and walk away. The poor person doesn't know what happened. Kazan recalled visiting James's father, Winton, with him and sensing the tension between them. In August 1955, Winton told Modern Screen Magazine, My boy Jim is a tough boy to understand. At least he is for me. But maybe that's because I don't understand actors, and he's always wanted to become one. Another reason is that we were separated for a long period of time, from when he was nine until he was 18. Those are the important formative years when a boy and his father usually become close friends. Jim and I, well, we've never had that closeness. It's nobody's fault, really, just circumstances. Leonard Rosenman, James's friend and composer for both East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause, said that he met Winton Dean, who was a monster, a person without any kind of sensitivity. Jimmy was doing everything in his career to get his father to like and approve of him, and his father never took the slightest interest. He was doing everything for one person, his father, not for a director, not for audiences, not even for himself. 
Kazan later said Jimmy would either get the scene right immediately, which he did 95% of the time, or he couldn't get it at all. Dean was a sick kid. If it hadn't been for Julie Harris, I don't think he would have gotten through the picture. Harris played the role of Abra, who becomes sort of a maternal figure for Cal in the film. Harris also served this role off screen, saying in 1991 that James was so sweet, even when he was frightened, which was when he could be ill-tempered. He was so terribly afraid, of everyone really. He was most afraid of not being true in his work, and so he worried and fretted and overanalyzed things. I felt that one of my goals in East of Eden was to calm him down, to let him know how good he was. I threw away about $3,000 once. Huh? When I was 13. You threw it away? It was a diamond ring worth about that. At least my father told me that's what he paid for it. I threw it in the river. Made Dad terribly angry. (laughs) A ring in the wood. But I forgave him. And it's been all right ever since. You forgave him? Yes. (laughs) You forgave him because... You threw a ring of his worth $3,000 into the river. That's right. And you forgave him? That's right. Barbara Glenn said, Of course Jimmy had his reasons for what he did, but really, who needs that shit? Nobody wants to break their back. The worst horror was watching people who did break their backs as he started to become James Dean, and then did the groveling and fawning begin. Jimmy was not good at reaching out, and you just knew that anything could be mistaken for ejection. He was so frightened of anything that was extended, of letting people in. It wasn't what Jimmy wanted, but he just didn't know. He used to say that he needed no one, that he cared for no one, which of course was not true. East of Eden premiered on March 9, 1955 at the Astor Theater in New York City. Tickets were $150 per person, about $1,700 today, and all of the proceeds went to the actor's studio. It was to be the only movie of James's released in his lifetime, although he did not attend the premiere because he was not into the Hollywood scene. James was posthumously nominated in 1956 for Best Actor at the Academy Awards, losing to Ernest Borgnine for Marty. James told Howard Thomas in his first interview, The cinema is a very truthful medium because the camera doesn't let you get away with anything. On stage, you can even loaf a little if you're so inclined. Technique, on the other hand, is more important. My real goal is to achieve what I call camera functioning on the stage. Don't get me wrong, I'm not one of those wise ones who try to put Hollywood down. The problem for this cat, myself, is not to get lost. Critical reception for East of Eden was mixed. Many people loved the thought-provoking and emotional story as well as the performances, while others dismissed James as another Brando, or felt that what had made the novel work so well was omitted from the script. Critic Pauline Kael wrote, There is a new image in American films. The young boy as beautiful, disturbed animal, so full of love, he's defenseless. Maybe his father doesn't love him, but the camera does, and we're supposed to. We're thrust into upsetting angles, caught in infatuated close-ups, and prodded. Look at all that beautiful desperation. A boy's agonies should not be dwelt on so lovingly. On the other hand, audiences reacted strongly to James in East of Eden, which was what mattered most, both to young people seeing a young, identifiable actor on screen, as well as to James's home studio, Warner Brothers. The publicity machine set its wheels in motion, getting him to go to a few movie premieres, as well as sitting down for interviews, most notably with the legendary Hedda Hopper, whom James charmed into being on his side. 
There is nothing more important for a Hollywood star than having Hedda Hopper in your corner. Biographer Peter Winkler said, Dean justified kowtowing to people he secretly despised because he felt it was a necessary evil to further his career. He disdained the studio's publicity machine, but at the same time, he craved attention. He resented having to talk to journalists and resented the studio. At the same time, he was an exhibitionist. Seemingly, thousands of photos were taken of him over 18 months, and he shrewdly courted talented photographers he knew would make him look good. These contradictory impulses may have induced a sense of self-loathing in him. Elia Kazan said, It's almost impossible for anybody to take that kind of attention and adulation and crowding, but Jimmy was more vulnerable than anybody I've ever seen. He was terrifically narcissistic. He bought himself a lot of camera equipment, and I remember him standing in front of a mirror taking pictures of himself. He became very aware of what sort of image he created. Sometime in the fall of 1954, James began receiving threats from Rogers Brackett, who had recently lost his job and needed money for a musical that he was planning to put together with composer Alec Wilder. He approached James, thinking he owed him for all of the money and gifts he had supplied him in their relationship. James was livid, especially since all of this occurred right before his big breakout, and he could not professionally afford to be affiliated with Brackett anymore. Brackett sued James for $1,200, almost $14,000 today, but they came to an agreement that James would pay $800, over $9,000 today, on a weekly basis instead. This signaled the end of his complicated relationship with Rogers Brackett. Throughout his relationship with Pierre Angeli, James faced difficulties from her extremely strict and controlling mother, who disliked James for his rebelliousness and the fact that he was not Catholic. Pierre came from a strict Catholic Italian family who found religion extremely important. Pierre wanted to get married, but James was hesitant. They grew even farther apart after he left for New York to film a television episode for a couple of weeks to avoid getting trapped in the Hollywood system. Facing pressure from her mother, Angeli broke things off to be with singer Vic Damone instead. They married on November 24, 1954. Angeli later said about James, He wanted me to love him unconditionally, but Jimmy was not able to love someone else in return. It was the troubled boy that wanted to be loved very badly. I love Jimmy as I have loved no one else in my life, but I cannot give him the enormous amount that he needed. Loving Jimmy was something that could empty a person. Angeli never got over James's death and committed suicide in 1971 at the age of 39. Prior to her death, she wrote to a friend, My love died at the wheel of a Porsche. It's now been 17 years that I've been lonely, desperately lonely. I want to find peace and be free and finally be with my father and Jimmy again. James teamed up with photographer Dennis Stock to create a spread for Life magazine in 1954 on his trip to the places he considered home, New York City and Fairmount, Indiana. Stock said he saw an awkwardness of purity that I wanted to capture. I wanted to get to the roots of the earthy quality he had. You know, I photograph what most people step on, things like weeds. And that's what Jimmy was, a weed. He grew like crazy and should have kept on growing. He visited some of his old haunts in New York, including the restaurants he frequented and his apartment where his treasured bullfighting cape hung. James met up with his old girlfriend, Barbara Glenn, whom he had stayed in touch with even after their breakup. Glenn revealed to him that she was going to be married, which tore James apart. 
he felt like everyone in his life was leaving him behind. Stock later said that Jimmy was an insomniac, the worst I've ever met, so at odd times and in odd places he would simply pass out for a few minutes or a few hours, then wake up and set out again. He lived like a stray animal. In fact, come to think of it, he was a stray animal. I made several appointments to shoot him. Sometimes he didn't show up at all, and when he did, he looked like utter hell, a two or three day growth of beard and enormous bags under his eyes. He was only 24, but the effects of his lifestyle were already beginning to show. James and Stock headed for the Winslow Farm in Fairmount, where they would be staying for a week. One series of photographs showed James posing in a coffin which he had insisted Stock take for him. About this, Stock said, he wasn't being delightful about death, he was afraid, and this way of dealing with it was to laugh in the demon's face, to make fun of it, tempt it, taunt it. When Jimmy acted like this, I just wanted to take him by the shoulders and shake him and say, how dare you? James visited his old high school for the Valentine's Day dance and met with fans, although they would have only known him from television as it was just a month before East of Eden was released. This series of Stock's photographs captured James on the brink of becoming an international sensation. An attendee at the dance said that Jimmy seemed to be enjoying himself immensely. He was at home, relaxed, talking to everyone, just having a good time. James hated Hollywood and was happy to be back home in familiar territory. Stock said, February is a rough month in the Midwest. Not the ideal time to observe anything, much less to probe your past. It is a lean, gray time, and that is the mood, too. But maybe this was part of Jimmy's constantly testing everything. Nothing ought to be idyllic. As was so often the case with Jimmy, he seemed to stack the cards against himself. He secretly recorded some conversations with his aunt and uncle, one being about a relative named Caldine, which James thought was an interesting coincidence, considering he had just played a character named Cal in East of Eden. And I played a character uh, in the movie East of Eden. His name is Cal. Yeah. And I read it. Dennis Stock said that Jimmy knew he'd never be coming back to the farm. That's why he had me set up the last shot of him in front of the farmhouse, with him looking one way and his dog Tuck turning away from him. It was his interpretation of that line, you can never go home again. I don't mean he thought he was going to die, but that he just felt it was gone. 
There was no way he could ever return to what he'd been, and that's what the farm represented to him. James did eventually return to Fairmount, but it was only a few months later, in a coffin. While he was signed on to do George Stevens' Giant next, co-star Elizabeth Taylor became pregnant with her second husband Michael Wilding's child, and filming was paused for three months, just enough time for James to work on Nicholas Ray's Rebel Without a Cause. He had so much enjoyed his time with Dennis Stock working on the Life magazine spread that he asked him to come on and be the set photographer for Rebel Without a Cause. The title was taken from a 1944 novel about a serial killer, although the stories have no relation. The cast prepared for the film weeks ahead, rehearsing in Ray's bungalow in the Chateau Marmont. Ray's main goal was to make the film feel as natural and realistic as possible and encourage the cast to make it their own. Composer Leonard Rosenman said that Ray and the screenwriter Stuart Stern would tell us what they had planned for a scene and then we'd react. Natalie might say, well, I don't think I should say that. Or someone would say, why can't Jimmy just go to the precinct? It was a pretty free-flowing discussion. We wrote and rejected and retained. But what really happened was we got to know each other as people and recognized ourselves as a pretty good team. Unfortunately, right before shooting was about to start, the star disappeared for about 10 days, and nobody knew where he was or what he had been doing. Stuart Stern recalled that James eventually showed up in his office and was back on the picture without even mentioning his absence. I don't know what scared him, but I know he was scared. Filming began in March 1955, and they shot for about a week in black and white on an extremely small budget. The producers ended up scrapping all of the footage in exchange for CinemaScope color to take advantage of James's star power with all the buzz surrounding East of Eden. The main trio of leads was comprised of James, Natalie Wood, and Sal Mineo, who had also been a child actor on Broadway. James had first worked with Wood in 1954 when they recorded the television special, I'm a Fool. She recalled their meeting. We found a cafe and like most actors, gabbed about the script we were working on in the show. Then in the middle of his sandwich, he said, I know you, you're a child actor. I said that was true, but it's a lot better than acting like a child. He didn't get it for a moment. Then he started to laugh. Then I started to laugh. And that's how our wonderful friendship began. I wish I didn't have to go back. I wish that train would never come. Yeah. Honest. I mean it. I mean it too, Lucy. I don't know when I'll be coming back here. When I'll ever get to see you again. Uh, Lucy. There's something that I've got to tell you. I wish that train would break down in the middle of the tracks and stay there. A hundred years. I'll just miss it, that's what. Mm. I'll pretend I didn't hear it come in. Well, it's not right for you to miss it. Uh, might be right for some girls, but... Yeah, not you, Lucy. Uh, oh, I just will be watching out so I can't miss it. Lucy, I gotta tell you something. Will you listen to me so a minute? Quiet. Don't talk. Well, but I gotta tell Please you this, don't talk. though. Anybody can open his mouth and let words come out. Talk is so cheap. So awfully cheap. Well, I know that, but this is something that you can't... can't. It seems so smooth. Like... Like we could get out in the middle of the lake and walk in the water. 
Doesn't seem like that to you. In Rebel Without a Cause, James, Wood, and Minio played three high school students struggling with individual family experiences, as well as social pressures, who end up bonding together. Well, we're safe here. I hope. What do you think of my castle? Wow. Shoo! Gee! Wow. Well, now there, then, uh, I think we'll take it for the summer. Right this way. Oh, uh, uh, would you like to rent it? Or are you more in the mood to buy, dear? You decide, darling. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Uh, remember um, our budget. Oh, don't give it a thought. It's, uh, only $3 million a month. What? Oh, we can manage that. I'll scrimp and I'll save and I'll work my fingers to the bone. You see, we're newlyweds. Yes. Oh, there's just one thing. What about... Children, right this way. Yes. See, we really don't encourage them. They're so noisy and troublesome. Don't you agree? Oh, yes, yes. And so terribly annoying when they cry. Oh, yes, I don't know what to do when they cry. Do you, dear? Ah, round them like puppies. Ah. As you see, the nursery's far away from the rest of the house. Hey, you forgot to wind your sundial. And if you have children, you'll find that this is a wonderful arrangement. They can carry on and you'll never even notice. Oh, sunken nursery. In fact, if you lock them in, you'll never have to see them again. Much less talk to them. Talk to them? Heavens. Nobody talks to children. No, they just tell them. <laughs> Nicholas Ray cast Frank Mazzola to play one of the gang leaders, since he was actually the leader of a gang at Hollywood High. Ray recalled that he wanted to study the goings-on in the gang and was introduced to the inner sanctum as his uncle. We planned a war, and Frank made the rules. No knives, no dope, just tire chains. On the night of the war, about 70 or 80 guys showed up at the pizza joint to wait for the yellow Ford, the signal from the other gang. It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen. I'd invented a way of concealing a mini phone tape recorder in a shoulder holster with a wristwatch as a microphone so we could get dialogue. I came away from the scene with a very primitive feeling about the whole confrontation. It was a conflict of sex and power. A knife fight in the film between James and gang leader Buzz, played by Corey Allen, was a difficult scene to film since they were actually fighting with real blades. They wore chest protectors under their shirts, but it was still nerve-wracking. James ended up getting nicked on the ear. A reporter asked him if this was too much for film, to which James replied, In motion pictures, you can't fool the camera. If we were doing this on stage, we'd probably be able to gimmick it up, but not in a picture. Film fans are too critical these days. Dennis Hopper, who co-starred in both Rebel and Giant, said that James improvised many things within the film by taking the written imaginary circumstances and make it his own by improvising. Lying on the ground in a fetal position, playing with a wound-up monkey beating at cymbals, giggling while being searched in the police station because it tickled, standing up in a drunken daze making the sound of sirens with his arms outstretched, hitting his fists into the sergeant's desk, jumping off a diving board into a swimming pool with no water, or doing the voice of Mr. Magoo throughout the movie, which was the voice of Jan Backus, his father and rebel. Things that were not written on the page, things that were invented by the actor. This was a huge deal for the 1950s, and Rebel was one of the most monumental films because of this. 
although many of the supporting cast struggled with James's odd behaviors and frequent delays in filming, especially Natalie Wood, who is both in love and in awe of James. Beverly Long, who played one of the popular kids, said that working with Jimmy was quite a feat because he would behave so badly sometimes, and it was hard, I think, with Natalie to get close to him. Wood served as a comforting figure as James was in complete distress over the news that Pierre Angeli was pregnant with Vic Damone's child. It was like two separate people. There was the Jimmy I was working with, and there was this other person on the screen. James's friends started seeing a change in him around this time, noticing that he was especially run down and expressed feelings of extreme alienation. Dealing with such personal material in the film may have been a part of it, as James was once again playing a character with complicated relationships with his parents. Bill Bast wrote that he believed that it was James's own peculiarity, his drift from the straight and narrow, as it were, that often led him to believe that he himself was basically bad. And so, perhaps his quest was, after all, to seek out fallen brethren. He befriended a group known as the Night Watch, which included Mela Nermi, also known as Vampira, a local horror movie television show host. On the subject of Nermi, James himself told columnist Hedda Hopper, I have a fairly adequate knowledge of satanic forces, and I was interested to find out if this girl was obsessed with such a force. She was a subject about which I wanted to learn. I met her and engaged her in conversation. She knew absolutely nothing. She uses her inane characterization as an excuse for the most infantile expression you can imagine. Bast wrote, Jimmy was again beginning to experiment with himself, maybe in an effort to explore darker corners, always using his craft, his art, as his rationale. Would he be able to put it all back into its box again when it was no longer useful for his work as an actor? Would he cease to control it and it start to control him? Anne Duran, who played James's mother in the film, said that she and Jim Backus watched James do a scene. As they waited for Nicholas Ray to yell action, everything got quiet and James got down in this fetal position. We waited and waited. Finally, he stood up and they said, action. Jim and I practically fell on the floor laughing. We'd never seen such a bunch of crap in our lives. We snuck out because we had broke up the scene by our laughing. Duran was disappointed in Nicholas Ray for allowing James to take over the film, so much so that he practically became the other director. Is that why you moved from the last town? Because you were in trouble? No, they think that they can protect me by moving around all the time. You had a good start in the wrong direction back there. Why'd you do it? What do you mean? Mess a kid up? Yeah. chicken and your folks didn't understand they never do they think that i can make friends if we move just move everything will be roses and sunshine but you don't think that's the right solution him alive and he takes it. Things pretty rough for you at home? The zoo. What? The zoo. The film ended with the death of the character played by Sal Minio, who said in 1972, it makes sense he was in a way the first gay teenager in films. 
You watch it now, you know he had the hots for James Dean. You watch it now, and everyone knows about Jimmy's bisexuality, so it's like he had the hots for Natalie and me. Ergo, I had to be bumped off. Screenwriter Stuart Stern said that Jim Stark was supposed to have died at the end as well, shot down by the police after his plea that he was holding the bullets in Plato's gun. Rebel Without a Cause was released almost a month after James's death and received extremely mixed reviews, some writers claiming it was too violent and melodramatic, while others praised the risk everyone had taken with the film in portraying something so new and different. Bosley Crowther wrote for the New York Times that James copied Marlon Brando with his performance. Never have we seen a performer so clearly follow another's style. Wanda Hale of the New York Daily Times said of James, With complete control of the character, he gives a fine, sensitive performance of an unhappy, lonely teenager tormented by the knowledge of his emotional instability. Marlon Brando himself later said in an interview that, James wanted to love and to be loved, and this shows in his acting. You see the ministrations, the effort. He is never any character but James trying to get your attention and your affection. He was so insanely young when he died. You grieve for the actor he might have become. You can see the seed of greatness in what he did. James was not Oscar-nominated for his performance in Rebel Without a Cause, although both Natalie Wood and Sal Mineo were in the supporting categories, becoming two of the youngest nominees in the award's history. James immediately set to work on the epic western giant, based on Edna Ferber's controversial novel that tells the story of the Benedict family spanning over the course of a few decades. James beat out two of his acting idols, Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift, for the role. He took the part to get away from being typecast as a delinquent type. James played opposite Rock Hudson, whom Stevens chose based on his believable performance as both a young and older man in Douglas Sirk's magnificent obsession. Elizabeth Taylor rounded out the principal's playing Leslie and was Stevens' only pick after working with her on 1951's A Place in the Sun. James played Jet Rink, a ranch hand who worked on Hudson and Taylor's ranch before striking oil and becoming the richest man in Texas. Edna Ferber based Jet on Glenn Herbert McCarthy, an oil tycoon who was well-revered in Texas. Hollywood was careful about portraying the characters in a way that would not be controversial for Texan audiences and would also not get them sued. The iconic Benedict House, designed by Boris Levin, was built specifically for the film in Hollywood and then transported to Marfa, Texas, where most of the filming would take place. Interior shots were done back at the Warner Brothers studios for three months. It was the biggest production James worked on in his career, so big, in fact, that it was being touted as the next Gone with the Wind. Hundreds of civilians from Marfa, Texas, were hired to be extras, many of them Mexican-Americans. Elsa Cardenas, who played Dennis Hopper's character's wife, Juana, recalled that they put dark makeup on her to make her look more Mexican, the way they thought Mexicans looked. Tensions were extremely high on set, as James and Hudson did not get along, and Taylor and director George Stevens had difficulties, especially after James's death. Theories about the drama between James and Hudson have been plentiful, ranging all the way from that they were both jealous of the other getting attention from Elizabeth Taylor, made passes at each other and were rejected, or that James was upset with the closeted Hudson not being more open with his sexuality. Most realistically, Hudson found James's style of acting unprofessional. He said that James was sulky and he had no manners, 
I'm not that concerned with manners. I'll take them where I can find them. But Dean didn't have them, and he was rough to do a scene with, for reasons that only an actor can appreciate. While doing a scene, in the giving and taking, he was just a taker. He would suck everything out and never give back. Hello, Jack. What do you want? My welcome in, babe. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Why, that's wonderful, Jen. <laughs> Everybody thought I had a duster? Y'all thought old Spindletopmo Burke Burnett was all oil it was, didn't you? Well, I'm here to tell you it ain't, boy. It's here. And there ain't a dang thing you're gonna do about it. My well came in big, so big, big, and there's more down there, and there's bigger wells. I'm rich, baby. <laughs> I'm a rich man. I'm a rich boy. Me, I'm gonna have more money than you ever thought you could have. You and all the rest, you stinking sons of Benedicts. Leslie, you go out in the house. Take the women with you. Jack, we're real glad you struck him. Now you go on along home. Oh, my, you sure did look pretty, Miss Leslie. You always did look pretty. James often held up production when he was not pleased with how Stevens' directing was going and would act out while filming by pulling pranks. In one memorable moment, urinated in front of the entire set after he got anxious about doing a scene with Elizabeth Taylor. Dennis Hopper said that James told him, I figured if I could piss in front of those 2,000 people, I could get in front of that camera and do just anything, anything at all. Stevens was known for being a perfectionist and would shoot each scene from every conceivable angle to have plenty to work with in the editing room, sometimes shooting for several hours just to get a scene that would last a few seconds. In total, they ended up with around 875,000 feet of film, roughly 165 miles long. James was already exhausted, having just completed Rebel Without a Cause, and disliked not having a say in his performance or the creative aspects of the film. He felt like Stevens was purposefully screwing with his role and acting process. Giant screenwriter Ivan Moffat said, Stevens was extremely thorough. He handled everything indirectly. He approached things almost ponderously. He didn't rush it. Nicholas Ray said that it was really depressing to see the suffering that boy was going through. Giant was really draining him, and I hated watching it happen. James told an interviewer that being an actor is the loneliest thing in the world. You dedicate yourself to it, and suddenly you find that you don't have time to see friends, and it's hard for them to understand. You're all alone with your concentration and your imagination, and that's all you have. To make matters worse, James was banned from racing during production, one of the only things that brought him relief and happiness. Warner Brothers didn't want to risk an accident, so James had to give it up until they were finished. Author Lee Raskin said, James Dean grew up as a bit of a daredevil. He wasn't afraid of anything. Was he a great driver? No. First, he was seriously myopic, which may help explain why he had metal-to-metal contact in every race he was in. Second, I think he was all accelerator, no brake. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Gig. We asked Jimmy over today because he's a racing man himself. A real one, not a crazy one. 
Incidentally, I think I should explain that Jimmy just stepped over from the set of Giant. And need I add, he plays a Texan. Speaking of racing, have you ever been in a drag race? Are you kidding me? I just thought I'd ask. No, Jim races in the tradition, you might say. Real racing cars, real tracks. How fast will your car go? Oh, an honest miles an hour. Clocked. It would run about 106, 7. You've won a few races, haven't you? Oh, one or two. Where? Well, I showed pretty good at Palm Springs. I ran a baker steel. Jimmy... We probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? A good point. I, uh, I used to fly around quite a bit, you know. I took a lot of unnecessary chances on the highways. And I started racing, and, uh, now I drive on the highways, I'm, uh, extra cautious. Because no one knows what they're doing half the time. You don't know what this guy's going to do with that one. On a track, there are a lot of men who spend a lot of time developing rules and uh, ways of safety. And uh, I find myself being very cautious on the highway. I don't have the urge to, to speed on the highway. People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. Well, gig... I think I'd better take off. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, one more question. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. <laughs> <laughs> However much he struggled working on Giant, James is still dedicated to his performance and wanted to accurately portray a Texan. He embodied Jet Rink throughout the entire production, both physically and mentally. For the scenes in which he played an aging jet, he shaved his hair to make it look like he had a receding hairline. He also learned how to lasso, ride like a ranger, play cowboy songs on the guitar, and hunt jackrabbits. He said that an actor should thoroughly understand the character he is portraying. There's no better way than trying to be that person in the house, away from the camera. I developed a program of understanding Jet Rink and doing things he'd be likely to do. I didn't want any jarring notes in my characterization. Jet was a victim of his position in life. I wanted to play him sympathetically. James's stance on acting may have also resulted in Hudson's dislike, as the two lived together along with co-star Chill Wills during filming. Wills often served as the peacekeeper between the two of them. Extras on the film recalled that James was always very kind to them and would often walk around the set with a bucket of chilled Coca-Colas that he would pass around. James became close with Mercedes McCambridge, who played Hudson's character's domineering older sister, Luz. She later recalled that on one disgustingly hot night during the filming of Giant, he and I ate a full jar of peanut butter, a box of crackers, and six Milky Ways, and drank 12 Coca-Colas. Set photographer Sanford Roth and his wife, Beulah, became like parents for James. Bill Bast said they understood Jimmy's insatiable curiosity and desire for knowledge, and they offered him what they had. He began spending much time with them, dropping in at their home, raiding the refrigerator, playing with Louise, their Siamese cat, and discussing things. Elizabeth Taylor also served as a close friend and confidant, revealing that she and James often spent nights talking about his past, but her feelings were hurt when he would avoid her the next day on set, probably because he was ashamed of letting someone in so close. During filming, she gifted him a Siamese kitten since he loved the Roths so much 
which he named Marcus, after his beloved young cousin. James would drive home every day at his lunchtime to feed and play with Marcus, but ended up giving the cat away to a friend. He was worried that if something happened to him, he would not be able to care for Marcus. In 1991, Taylor said, It's hard to talk about certain people because you remember the friend you loved, and people in a myth or a sermon. He was my friend, and I loved him. His death was tragic, but he was not. He had no more problems than anyone on the face of the planet, but his were broadcast, written about, analyzed, laughed about. We wanted to know more about him because we loved him, not because we wanted him to be a lesson or a warning. After James's sudden death, Taylor had to be hospitalized for depression, which was made even worse when director George Stevens forced her to complete reaction shots for Giant for scenes she had done with James. He filmed his last scene, the drunken banquet speech near the end of the movie, after an entire week of preparation. Stevens recalled that James was incredibly nervous about it, and it was a very strange scene that a lot of actors would have said just couldn't work, but they needed to get it done since it was Jet's final appearance in the film. Stevens said, after all we'd put in the picture, we couldn't get to that scene and not have him be able to do it. James ended up getting drunk himself, but they found in the editing stage that his entire monologue was completely inaudible from his mumbling. His friend, actor Nick Stevens, ended up dubbing it over. James still had several pictures to do for Warner Brothers to fulfill his contract, but was more eager to start a production company with Nicholas Ray and start directing his own films. James wanted complete control over his creative ideas and told Hedda Hopper that he wanted to hone his writing as well. I can't apply the seat of my pants right now. I'm too youthful and silly. I must have some age. I'm in great awe of writing and fearful of it, but someday. James had bought a Porsche 550 Spider during production of Giant and was eager to finally put it to use. He signed up for the Salinas Road Race, which would take place on October 1st and 2nd. He saw the Winslows for the last time shortly before leaving when they came to visit him as well as Winton Dean. He proudly showed them his new Porsche and even took little Marky for a ride. On September 30th, James and his mechanic, Rolf Wetherick, who had decided that James should drive the brand new vehicle to Salinas to break it in, left on a seven-hour drive. Sanford Roth and Bill Hickman, who was James's dialogue coach for Giant, followed behind them in a station wagon that was hauling the trailer for the Porsche. Roth captured the last ever photograph of James from behind, driving down the highway. Wetherick said that Highway 466 was now deserted by the time 5 p.m. rolled around. No car except our spider and the station wagon, as far as we could see. Jimmy went faster now, a very natural thing to do when you are all alone on a good road in a racing car. It was just past 5 in the afternoon. The sun, a ball of fire, shone directly in our eyes. It was still very hot, and the heat flickered and danced on the sandy brown road. To the right and left of us was desert, in front of us an endless ribbon of road. Sometime around 5.45, the spider was hit by 23-year-old Donald Turnipseed, who was going on the opposite side of the road and turning left in front of James and Wetheridge. Sanford Roth recalled catching up to the side of the crash a few minutes later. I noticed what seemed like some kind of roadblock far off in the distance. As they came closer, the obstruction took form. It was a sedan, not badly damaged, in the middle of the highway. I strained to look around the immediate area. I was looking for the other car. Off in a ditch to the right, I suddenly saw what had been the sleek silver Porsche. Now it was like a crumpled pack of cigarettes. Jimmy was dead in his seat. 
the impact had thrown his head back too far. The details of what happened are not clear, as Weatherick suffered severe memory loss, James was dead, and Turnipseed merely recalled not being able to see the spider due to the glare of the sun and how low to the ground the vehicle was. A common myth is that James had been speeding, going at least 90 miles an hour, but realistically had been driving the speed limit of 50 to 55 miles per hour based on the damage done to both his and Turnipseed's cars. Turnipseed was actually the one who was speeding. Tire skid marks on the road showed that he had been making a hard and fast left turn and slightly swerved, meaning he had seen the spider, but by then it was too late. Weatherick was thrown from the spider on collision and suffered injuries that put him in the hospital for over a year, while James was trapped inside and broke his neck. A nurse on the site said she could feel a faint pulse, but his neck was not put into a brace, which may have saved him. 24-year-old James Dean was pronounced dead at 6.20 p.m. on September 30, 1955. His funeral was held on October 8th in Fairmount, Indiana, where he was also buried. Turnipseed was never convicted for manslaughter and never spoke about the accident ever again. We'll never know exactly what happened that evening. Rebel Without a Cause was released just a few days after James's funeral. His aunt and uncle wrote to Martin Landau, We feel like we have to see it, and at the same time, I don't know whether I can or not. James's legacy ended up being forever intertwined with the film. Newsweek magazine wrote, In this movie, he wins an auto race with death. Only four weeks ago, at the age of 24, he lost one. The New Republic claimed that, in James Dean, his movie roles, his life and death, there is a general lack of identity. He is supposedly like all the rest of us, and to criticize him would be self-criticism. The film brought the opposite intended effect in its depictions of juvenile delinquency, and ended up increasing teen gang violence in the United States. Rebel was even banned in some countries. James's crushed spider was sold to two racers, one of whom died in a race in a car that used parts from James's spider. Later, the body of the car was sold to George Barris, who wanted to put it back together, but that proved impossible. Instead, he welded aluminum sheet metal all along the car and beat it to simulate collision damage. From 1957 to 59, Barris loaned the car out to various places in the United States as exhibitions for safe driving practices. The car disappeared in 1960 while being transported back to Barris in Los Angeles on a train. Nobody knows what happened to it. The stretch of highway on which James died has since been altered, but has resulted in even more deaths, three times the state average, in fact. Giant premiered almost a year after James's passing, on October 18, 1956, at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Many fans thought that James's death was merely a publicity stunt by Warner Brothers, but he did not show up. Shortly after his death, a massive cult-like status surrounded James. Humphrey Bogart said that Dean died at just the right time. He left behind a legend. If he lived, he'd never been able to live up to his publicity. Dick Williams reported that the adoration and virtual canonization of the late James Dean continues to mushroom. It is one of the phenomena of the celebrity-worshipping era that future anthropologists may study with deep interest. A psychiatrist deduced that, in almost every way, James Dean is a remarkably vivid and compelling symbol of the confusions and tumults experienced in adolescence and early maturity. Teenagers, you see, long for the dignity and the sophistication that they see in older people. Dean's death may have given them something to satisfy that need. 
Just a guess, he may have given them the nourishment of a mature and sophisticated sense of tragedy. Lou Bracker, one of James's racing buddies and someone who was close to him in the last few months of his life, said that if Jimmy were here and saw what was going on, he'd die all over again without the accident. It's mass hysteria. His performance as Jet Rink brought him a record-breaking second posthumous Academy Award nomination, although he lost to Yul Brynner for The King and I. A reviewer wrote that James gave a virtuoso performance. Jet Rink is a willful, brilliant variation on the character he made his own and died for, the baffled, tender, violent adolescent rejected by the world he rejects. George Stevens later changed his perspective on James and reflected that he was a disturbed boy, tremendously dedicated to some intangible beacon of his own, and neither he nor anyone else might ever know what it was. I used to feel this because at times when he felt quiet and thoughtful, as if inner bidden to dream about something, an odd and unconscious sweetness would light up his countenance. At such times, and because I knew he had been motherless early, since early childhood, and had missed a lot of the love that makes boyhood gel, I would come to believe that he was still waiting for some lost tenderness. Even after his death, James's mailbox at Warner Brothers received up to 8,000 fan letters a month. Apparently, many of his fans from across the world didn't know he was already dead. Several of the roles that James was set to play ended up jumpstarting the careers of the likes of Paul Newman and Warren Beatty. The Winslows sold the rights for James's face and name, making him one of the most instantly recognizable celebrities of all time. His personal materials and possessions continue to be auctioned off for high sums today, which is a shame given their historical importance. Rebel screenwriter Stuart Stern mused that it's the secret that's never told that gives Jimmy the most extraordinary suspense. Even in death, the secrets are still being withheld. The mystery of James Dean isn't over. It's the core of his excitement, what he did show and what he refused to show. James himself said, I don't exactly know how to explain it, but I have a hunch there are some things in life we just can't avoid. They happen to us probably because we're built that way. We simply attract our own fate, make our own destiny. I want to live as intensely as I can, be as useful and helpful to others as possible for one thing, but live for myself as well. I want to feel things and experiences right down to their roots, Enjoy the good in life while it is good. David Dalton ended a chapter in The Mutant King with this paragraph. The faster and further you go, the harder it is to stop when you come to the edge. Jimmy had been working so hard and winning so long, it seemed he would never go over. His fantasies had become reality, and that hoary old specter Jimmy had so relentlessly pursued finally came to take him away. The gap between the white bear and the stars closed on the road to Selena's where Jimmy's first mythic film had begun, as he disappeared in a silver car on a gray road at dusk. Thank you so much for listening to the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. Make sure to join me and my co-host Louise next week. We will be discussing our thoughts on James's three films and the legacy he has left behind. This episode was researched, written, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Music